Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com forward slash hardcore history for your free audiobook download. December 7th. It's history. 1941. The events. A date which will live. The drama. In infamy. The figures. This will have vice It's hardcore history. What is a monument? If you think about what that term means, a monument is some sort of commemoration. It's a reminder. A monument could be to an event, could be to a person. You see statues all over the world commemorating important or noteworthy individuals. You see all sorts of architectural monuments around the world reminding us of some important event or honoring, you know, important people or times or places. Now, most occurrences where a monument is put up is something that's well thought out and designed. Some monuments are the most artistic and beautiful things that human hands have ever crafted. Monuments all over, for example, Rome today from past history. Places like Paris, full of monuments. London, full of monuments. Washington, D.C., all over the world, right? But there are some monuments that are inadvertent commemorations that were never designed, were never crafted by human hands, and yet can be more powerful than anything we put together to remind us of the past. One of those inadvertent monuments is said to exist in southern Russia. And you could almost call it legendary because part of me thinks that if it were really there, we would have heard a lot more about it. But the people who have written about it are very credible, so I tend to believe them. One of the people who visited this inadvertent monument, is an author named Donovan Webster, who wrote a book called Aftermath. And Aftermath is a book about the modern-day condition of 20th century battlefields. For example, he takes you in one story to uh, modern-day France and tours the World War I battlefields there and talks about, you know, the shells that still keep coming to the surface and exploding and the places in France on the battlefields that are still cordoned off where people aren't allowed to go because they'll get blown up still from ordnance that's 100 years old. But the most haunting part of Donovan Webster's book is when he takes, you know, several planes and a bunch of cars to get to this spot in the middle of nowhere on the steps of southern Russia to see something that very few people know is there, especially outside of Russia. And he says he had a guide with him, and they pulled the car up to this spot, and it was in the middle of a very flat plain, and you could see way off into the distance, all the way to the horizon, miles away. And he says that he and the guide got out of the car, their boots crunching on the snow-filled field, and the guide told him to look down. And Webster says when his eyes adjusted to the blinding white of the snow and the plains and everything, he could make out strange shapes in the snow. And the guide picked up one of these shapes. 
and showed it to Webster. And it was a bone. A human bone. And he and Webster begin walking around this field, picking up clavicles and thigh bones and jaw bones and pieces of skulls, and they are everywhere. He says there are also jack boots that you come across and all sorts of leather gear, all the refuse and debris of human existence that you might imagine still sitting around this field. And he says you can look off into the horizon and these bones are sticking up out of the snow as far as you can see for miles. The guide tells him that this is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of how far this bone field, he calls it, stretches. This bone field is a monument, an inadvertent commemoration of an important event with many, many, many lessons to teach modern-day people today. And it's out in the middle of nowhere. The nearest major city is a place called Volgograd, which may not ring a bell in your memory, but Volgograd used to have another name. It used to be called Stalingrad. These skeletons lying on this bone field that Webster was picking up out of the snow are the remains of Hitler's Wehrmacht from the Second World War. And this was the breakwater that the tide of Nazi expansion broke against before it began to recede back to the borders of Germany. This is as far as they got. And there may be 300,000 human beings in an area about 30 miles long and 20 miles deep. And in a very strange thing to say, it's probably good that those 300,000 people died. They are a human reminder of the cost of evil. Imagine how different our world might be today had that army not been defeated outside of Stalingrad in what must have been a cavalcade of human suffering. Here's the thing, though. Those 300,000 human beings who lay on the steps of modern-day Russia were not all evil. Many of them were simply pawns of an evil regime. There's a line my grandfather used to use. There but for the grace of God go I. There were no conscientious objectors in Nazi Germany. And many of those people fighting in that army that suffered massively and died at that spot could have been you and could have been me had we been born in a different time and a different place. They were pawns of evil for the most part. And here's what makes this story so difficult to tell. The people who killed them were also pawns of evil. This is a story that is not a good guy versus bad guy story. This is a bad guy versus bad guy story. 
and those are always the toughest to tell. You see, if you took the Eastern Front, as it was called, in the Second World War, the, the war between Nazi Germany and the Communist Soviet Union, if you took that out of the greater scheme of World War II and just looked at it by itself, it would be the largest war in human history. The Eastern Front was more costly and larger than the whole First World War was. It was a titanic struggle between the two largest land powers in maybe the history of the world. An immense conflict that ate up lives at a pace that is unimaginable. And it's a very difficult story to tell also because it's very recent. You don't get angry emails like I do when you talk about the struggles between Rome and Carthage or the ancient wars between Greece and Persia. They're just too far in the past. The ideologies don't matter anymore. The suffering of the peoples is obscure and remote. But there are people who are going to listen to this program who can look at their arms and see the tattoos from the death camps that they used to be in. It's hard to have an objective look at things when you're so close to them. And to talk about the suffering of the people who were the pawns in this story is also difficult. Because there are a lot of people who think that the suffering is deserved. I grew up 30 years. I was a kid 30 years after the Second World War ended. And to give you some perspective, the 1960s that many of you think was not that long ago is 40 years ago now. And when I was a kid, if you had tried to sympathize with, say the women and children who were caught in the bombing of German cities, places like Dresden or Hamburg, you would not have found much sympathy, even in a place like the United States, which was hardly touched by the war compared to places like the Soviet Union or France or London. People would say to you, well, if they didn't want to burn to death in those bombing raids, they shouldn't have bombed Rotterdam. They shouldn't have bombed London. That was the attitude you would have. And it's not hard to understand. There's some truth to that. Just like there's some truth that it's a good thing that there are 300,000 dead Germans, along with Italian allies and Romanian allies and Hungarian allies and Bulgarian allies, on those plains of southern Russia now. But that doesn't negate the fact that those were human beings. And that this is a story with lessons. And one of the main lessons is that those people were victims of a government and an ideology. Lesson number one is the damage that a single person making decisions can unleash. They were the victims of one man's will, Adolf Hitler. You know, there's a, uh, a line, and it may or may not be true, that one of the founding fathers of the United States is supposed to have uttered, comparing government to fire, saying that fire, when it's well-controlled, like government when it's well-controlled, can make your life a lot better, give you some warmth, give you some comfort, cook your food, that kind of thing. But if that fire is allowed to get out of control, it can become an inferno that burns everything around it. Well, the governments of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union got out of control. And first, they burned the people in those countries 
and victimized them and then spread and started to burn and victimize all of their neighbors. The 300,000 or so skeletons lying on the Russian steppe right now is a commemoration, an inadvertent monument saying, here's what happens when governments get out of control and evil individuals run amok unchecked. And this is a story about a war with victims on all sides. I started my research, maybe in an incorrect way, reading diaries and accounts by people who were at these conflicts. And the first one I read was from a German soldier or a man fighting for Germany on the Russian front. One of the bad guys, right? And yet as you read this account of this man's suffering, and it was profound, you couldn't help but feel sympathy for him. He was a human being. He was fighting in the cause of evil, but as he wrote in his book, pain is international. And he was feeling pain. And then I went and read the accounts from the Russian soldiers who were also fighting for an evil regime. And their pain was international too. And then you think of all the innocents, besides the people caught in the bombing raids, all of the people that were lined up against the walls and shot, all the people that were raped as part of this conflict, all of the human suffering, and you start to realize that the Second World War and the Russian front, the Eastern Front in particular, is just another one of those human lessons about man's inhumanity to man. And it almost seems like the... Suffering gets worse and worse and worse because we don't learn the lesson. And the wars of the 20th century were the worst in human history. Maybe because we didn't learn from the ones that happened before that. I mean, those 20th century German planners who were trying to figure out the best way to invade the Soviet Union... There were plenty of lessons for them to draw on from the 19th century. They knew, as every European schoolchild also knew, that invasions of Russia had been tried before. Tried by gifted, conquering warlords with tragic results. You only have to look at the year 1812, about 129 years before Operation Barbarossa was launched by the Germans against the Soviet Union to see what might happen to an army that invaded the gargantuan landmass that was Russia at the time. In 1812, Napoleon Bonaparte, the greatest of European conquerors maybe, had amassed, well, just about every major nation of Europe under his sway, either as an ally or as a subject people, except for the giant territory that was ruled by the Russian Tsar. The Tsar being the Russian word for an emperor, basically. And Napoleon decided he was going to teach this Tsar a lesson. He'd beaten the Tsar's armies all over Eastern Europe, but not Russia itself. So Napoleon amassed one of the great armies in European history, more than 600,000 men from a dozen nations, including quite a few Germans, ironically enough, called it the Grand Army. And in June 1812 launched an invasion of the colossal Russian state. Now, what happened to Napoleon 
was a lesson that should have been taken to heart. And a lot of people did take it to heart. The first thing that happened is the great conqueror found his normal lightning tactics frustrated by the great distances in Russia. There was always just too much room for the Russians to simply pull back, keep retreating into the vastness of their country. Not just that, the Russians tended to fight quite a bit better on their own soil than they did when they were fighting in some other foreign country. And most importantly, the weather in Russia was atrocious. It alternated between scorching summer heat and unbelievable winter cold, and between those two seasons were rainy seasons which turned the Russian dirt roads into a soupy kind of mud that could swallow up whole gun carriages. The French had no way to prepare logistically for this nightmare, and it bedeviled them during the whole campaign. Napoleon would have sharp encounters with Russians where he would basically be successful. Sometimes they were more like stalemates. But none of these victories seemed to win Napoleon all that much. He still had to keep marching, his troops diminishing in numbers all the time, stragglers being picked off, food becoming a problem. Eventually, Napoleon manages to capture one of the major cities, Moscow. And it ends up not doing him any good at all. He had planned to winter in Moscow and use it as a base of operations to keep the Russians down, because winter was approaching. The Russians just burned it down, denying Napoleon and his troops any shelter for the coming winter. Napoleon was frustrated, flummoxed, didn't know what to do. This was beyond the scope of anything he'd had to deal with before. Eventually, he and his generals decide they just have to leave. And they have to leave before the winter overtakes them. So they start back towards France. Napoleon's army thought that they were going to outrun the winter, and they almost did. But on November 6th, as a chronicler pointed out who was marching with the army, quote, The heavens declared against us. The army marched enveloped in cold fogs. These fogs became thicker, and presently an immense cloud descended upon it in large flakes of snow. It seemed as if the very sky was falling and joining the earth and our enemies to complete our destruction. Other writers talk about the survivors of Napoleon's army dragging themselves along as best they could, their faces smeared with blood from the little horse flesh that was to be had, their beards stiffened with icicles. One memoir tells of soldiers, quote, walking barefoot, using pieces of wood as canes, but their feet were frozen so hard that the sound they made on the road was like that of wooden clogs. End quote. Flocks of ravens followed the retreat, waiting for the dead bodies that would be falling every few minutes. Out of the more than 600,000 people Napoleon led into Russia in 1812, barely 100,000 will squeak out with their lives. This was a defeat of traumatic proportions that ruined Napoleon basically forever. He was never the same, nor was his reputation. But there were lessons to be learned. And don't think the German planners didn't learn them. As a matter of fact, when Hitler laid down what the actual strategy was going to be when he was working out the plan to invade Russia, the strategy was designed specifically to avoid the mistakes that Napoleon made. Napoleon's ghost hung over this World War II conflict in the East like a vengeful specter. 
and even the soldiers on the ground would write in their diaries at times that they now felt like they were walking in the footsteps of Napoleon's French soldiers, both in good times and in bad while fighting in Russia. Now, it might have been an easier lesson to learn for German planners had there not been an intervening event that sort of muddied the clarity of the waters when it came to learning that you shouldn't invade the Russian Colossus. And the thing that muddied the waters was the First World War. In the First World War, about a hundred years almost exactly after Napoleon's invasion of Russia, the Germans would fight on two fronts. They had a plan to crush France called the Schlieffen Plan. And the Schlieffen Plan involved putting all their overwhelming force on the west against France and a little teeny holding force in the east to prevent the Russians, who were allied to the British and the French, from overrunning places like Berlin and the eastern part of Germany. Well, what ended up happening was astounding and unexpected. That little holding force that many German planners were worried wouldn't be able to even fight off the Russian Colossus did a heck of a lot more than that. It ended up crushing the Russian forces. Battles like Tannenberg made the reputation of famous German generals like Hindenburg and Ludendorff, where small German forces defeated Russian armies of hundreds of thousands of men, took tons of prisoners. Russian generals were shooting themselves out of shame for, you know, what had happened to their armies. The losses began to topple a Russian government that was already unsteady. They still were living under the rule of an autocratic czar at that point, but the czars had been fighting off revolutionary attempts for years. The crushing losses against the Germans in the First World War were enough to push the rotting edifice of the Russian government over. And the Germans helped. They found every Russian revolutionary and rabble-rouser they could get their hands on who were exiled in Europe and put them on trains and paid for their tickets and sent them right back to Russia figuring that they would undermine an already sick and dying government. And this they did. One of those was a guy named Lenin. Maybe you've heard of him. Lenin and his fellow rabble-rousers uh, helped topple the Russian government. The Russians pull out of the First World War, sign a humiliating treaty with Germany, and end up fighting amongst themselves, including a civil war, that won't be finished and resolved until 1920-1921. At times, it would even involve foreign forces trying to fight for the old czarist government or something connected to it. British, French, and even American troops would fight in this war at one time or another, leading eventually to a very suspicious attitude on the part of the Russian communists against the West. They never forgot the intervention of the Western forces trying to topple their regime when their regime was just getting started. Now, this regime became a very interesting social experiment. The communists, the Bolsheviks, who eventually took hold in Russia, became the first example of a communist nation. It was a great experiment, if you will. And there were a lot of people who looked at this as the dawning of a new age. There were very high hopes among a lot of people that this was the beginning of a worker's paradise. Communist rhetoric had always been focused on labor and laborers. 
And there were plenty of people, especially folks who happened to be of a more leftward-leaning bent, even in the West, who thought this a great achievement. One of the most autocratic, conservative, right-wing governments of all time, the Tsar of Russia, had been replaced by a much more worker-friendly one, a government that was going to turn the sorrow, the traditional hard life of the Russian people under the Tsar, to something more pleasant, more hopeful, more futuristic, and usher in the dawning of a new age. Now, it didn't quite work out that way. Meanwhile, the Germans end up losing the First World War, and in 1918, the Allies dictate the terms of the peace to Germany, launching absolute chaos in the Central European nation. The German monarch, the Kaiser, is deposed. A social democracy is enacted. And the Germans begin fighting in the streets among rightist militarists and communist agitators. And Germany, for all intents and purposes, looks like it's falling apart. Add to that the crushing reparations that were part of the peace treaty. The inflation of the currency that comes as part of those reparations. And Germany was ripe for extremism. And it was into this chaos that a man like Adolf Hitler could find his place. He takes over a small group of people called the National Socialist German Workers' Party, ostensibly sort of a left-wing group, takes it over and turns it into his own sort of organization, purges it of the people who don't think like he does, uses his force of personality to sort of run with this group now that's his. He makes an ill-fated attempt at taking over the government, the government gives him a relatively short sentence in prison for doing it. In prison, he writes this book called Mein Kampf, where he lays out his whole worldview, a worldview which includes things like Lebensraum, living space, a almost colonial idea that if Germany wants to take its place among the great world nations, it needs to gobble up territory to do so. Because in Hitler's mind, if you read Mein Kampf, you can see he has the great nations of the world all hooked together and they all have one thing in common. They control large areas of territory. Even the British Empire, you know, the British Isles being very small, but when you look at all of their colonial possessions, Britain has darn near half the world. And he points out that the United States and Russia, all huge territories. And he says that Germany's too small. If it's going to take its place among those other nations, it needs to be bigger. And that land needs to come in the East. Hitler, in prison in the 1920s, is dictating his plan to pull off the very thing that Napoleon, in 1812, was unable to pull off. He's laying the groundwork for his war against the Russians. Now, of course, they weren't the Russians now. They were the Soviet Union which was Russia and a bunch of neighboring states combined into this communist utopia, which was much more of a totalitarian regime with sort of communism as the ideology that justified it. And Hitler decided that this Bolshevist regime was one of the major threats to world civilization. 
Hitler saw everything in a racial mold as well. It's hard to understand his worldview without understanding how much he thought race and your blood played a role in who you were. And in Hitler's mind, the worst people on the planet were the Jews. And in his mind, the Bolsheviks were nothing more than a Jewish international movement designed to take over the world. And there's no question that the communist ideology talked about a world revolution. Solidarity with all the workers in the various other countries. Hitler's main foes in the streets of Germany were communists. He saw the Bolsheviks as Jews. Marx himself, the very you know, ground zero intellectual at the heart of communist thinking was Jewish, and Hitler was not the only person that connected Judaism and communism. And so in Hitler's mind, the Jewish internationalist conspiracy had finally gotten their hands on a major country, Russia, and this was going to be the enemy of the future state that he was going to run, which is amazing considering he's writing that stuff from prison to imagine that he would be running that state someday is rather prophetic. And that day was only about seven or eight years in coming. Hitler's ascent to power is one of the great stories in all world history of a man taking control of a major industrial state. And a lot of people like to point out that Adolf Hitler was democratically elected by the German people, but this is a little bit misleading. In the last real free election that Hitler took part in, he only received 36 or 37 percent of the vote and not everyone voted. So it was a minority of people that put Adolf Hitler into power. And once he got his foot in the door, he was able to establish total power in a relatively short time. He wasn't elected as the dictator of Germany, but it didn't take him long to get from point A to point B. And once in power, he began implementing all the ideas from that blueprint, that book Mein Kampf that he wrote in prison in the middle 1920s. Everything from the persecution of Jews to the rearmament of the German military, which wasn't as crippled as you might think it should be based on the fact that the Versailles Treaty after World War I said it shouldn't be able to do anything, because even before the Nazis came to power, the German government had crafted a secret deal with the Soviet Union where they would trade minerals and information if the Soviets would allow the Germans to practice with all sorts of weapons they weren't allowed to have and involving doctrines they weren't allowed to develop secretly on Soviet territory in the 1920s especially. But the irony of this whole thing is many of the doctrines and strategies and ideas that were figured out during this time were going to be used against the Red Army when those two sides clashed in the 1940s. The Soviets actually helped the Germans develop the very tactics they would use against the Red Army. Red Army, by the way, is the term used to describe the Soviet Union's army. Red was the traditional color of the communist revolution, so they refer to their army as the Red Army. They refer to their air force as the Red Air Force, that sort of thing, in any case. Now, in the Soviet Union, Lenin, the great founder of the communist state, died relatively soon after the Civil War ended. And there was no obvious second banana to lead the country when he did die. There was no vice president of Russia that automatically would step into the power vacuum. Later on, it was discovered that Lenin had sort of left a last will and testament saying who he didn't want to get the job. He said, don't give the job to that guy, Joseph Stalin, who turned out to be the guy who got the job. Lenin felt that Stalin was too ruthless, would abuse power, and that's, of course, exactly what he did. In her book, Ivan's War, Catherine Marindal tells a story that is 
symbolic of Stalin's cruelty. She quotes a woman who knew Stalin way back when, when he was a nobody, and explains an incident that she remembers that typifies his character. She writes, quote, One afternoon, the woman said, it must have been in April, sometime before 1904, she and a group of comrades were out for a walk. Their path lay by a river that had swollen after the spring thaw. A calf, newborn, still doubtful on its legs, had somehow become stranded on an island in the middle. The friends could hear it bleeding above the roar of the water, but no one dared to risk the torrent. No one, that is, except the Georgian, Koba, which was Stalin's name, who ripped off his shirt and swam across. He reached the calf, hauled himself out to stand beside it, waited for all the friends to watch, and then he broke its legs. Joseph Stalin was a lot like Adolf Hitler. They were both paranoid. They were both ruthless. Stalin's one of those guys who said once that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths, a statistic. And he sort of governed with that philosophy from the time Stalin got even partial power to the time he took over the Soviet state. Millions of people in the Soviet Union died. Sometimes it was overtly things that Stalin wanted to do, and sometimes it was as a byproduct of his policies. For example, a starvation that he started in the Ukraine killed maybe 10 million people. That number is flexible, but millions and millions is a good way to put it. Not just that, he was involved in all sorts of purges where he would go after his political enemies. He would use the power of a group called the NKVD, which would later be known as the KGB. They were the Russian version of the German Gestapo people that were very adept at torturing and going after enemies of the state and liquidating them. One survivor of an NKVD torture session said when he walked into the torture chambers of the NKVD, there were gouged out eyes and teeth and cut off ears and cut off fingers and tongues all over the floor from previous torture sessions. Stalin used this against his political opposition and people he even felt threatened by he would then drag these tortured shells of human beings in front of a court, force them to confess to these things that they'd never done, and then have the NKVD take them out back and shoot them in the back of the neck with a pistol, which was their standard execution method. Stalin was a terroristic leader, and he governed through the use of terror, just like Adolf Hitler did in Germany. They kind of admired each other's ruthlessness also, because when Hitler purged elements of the Nazi party in something called the Night of the Long Knives, Stalin is said to have admired his ruthlessness and told some subordinates that Adolf Hitler's quite a guy, isn't he? So even though their politics were very different, their temperament wasn't that far removed from each other. Now, unfortunately for Joseph Stalin, one of the areas he saw a threat looming was among military officers. And in the 1930s, he held several purges where he went after tens of thousands of Red Army officers. Now, they weren't all killed or thrown into prison. A lot were just removed, but a lot were killed, a lot were tortured, and a lot were thrown into prison. The people that ended up taking the place of these experienced officers were much lower down on the food chain, much less experienced. And when the coming war with Germany actually happened, the Red Army would miss these experienced people. This turned out to be a place where Stalin's paranoia would hurt him badly later. Now, it's well known how the Second World War broke out. We talked about this in another podcast as well. Adolf Hitler, in the late 1930s, begins making demands on areas around Germany. Czechoslovakia was a perfect example. And the Allied powers, Britain and France, were in no position to 
get involved in a major war. So they were giving in on Hitler's demands. It was called appeasement later on, trying to appease the dictator. Eventually, though, Hitler pushed his luck too far, and the British and French carved out a line in the sand, and it was over Poland. Germany wanted several little areas, a corridor called the Danzig Corridor, among other things, uh, handed over from Poland, and the Allies had felt like they had given enough, and so they opened up backdoor negotiations with the Soviet Union, ostensibly to create sort of a united front. Germany goes into Poland, are you with us? Stalin was very serious about these negotiations, but apparently, according to documents released from the Soviet Union after the fall of the Soviet Union, the British and the French weren't that serious, and they kind of dithered, and they weren't very focused about it, not very concrete, and so the negotiations broke off. The British and the French maybe not thinking that this war was actually going to happen. The Soviet Union then made a deal with Germany, secretly, a non-aggression pact, right before the Poland thing hit the fan. This stunned the world, by the way. These two ideological enemies that had been throwing verbal bombs at each other. Hitler had been talking about this threat to civilization ever since Mein Kampf. And all of a sudden, the world is confronted right before the Second World War breaks out with this diplomatic coup saying that the Soviet Union and Germany were going to be, well, maybe not friends, but they weren't going to fight each other. They were going to have trade deals with each other. Lots of raw materials were going to go back and forth. And as part of a secret deal, the Germans were going to go into Poland and take one half, and the Russians were going to invade Poland from the other side and take the other half. When the war broke out in September 1939, and Hitler invaded Poland, and Britain and France declared war on Germany, which Adolf Hitler was not really expecting. I think he kind of thought they were bluffing. He had almost defeated Poland before the Red Army decides to invade from the east, fulfilling their part of the split Poland into bargain. And the war starts, and the buffer states that separate Germany from their mortal enemy, the Soviet Union, even with that recent non-aggression pact, begin to get gobbled up. Yet all these nations in between Germany and Russia preventing you know, direct contact, and now they were starting to swallow these states up, and they were going to have a shared border. The Poles became the first nationality to really fall into the category that we consider a major theme in the show. What I call the double victim. Because the Poles were victimized by the Germans and by the Russians. The Germans immediately begin rounding up Polish intellectuals and Jews and everyone from their side of Poland and persecuting them. And the Russians begin carting off thousands of Poles. They kill maybe up to 20,000, maybe more Polish officers in a forest. They begin shooting intellectuals, sending off male household members to gulags. This is a nightmare for the Polish people, which has never really been quite brought up the way it should. And after Poland falls, the Soviet Union gets involved in a conflict with Finland. They demand some Finnish territory, expecting the Finns to give right in. The Finns have much more of a backbone than anyone thinks, and they say no. A war breaks out between the Soviet Union and Finland, and the Soviet Union ends up having a terrible time against tiny little Finland. Terrible time. 100,000 or more Soviet soldiers die. It's awful. It's a debacle. They look terrible in the war. This becomes another little thing that sticks in Hitler's mind, thinking, aha, the Soviet Union is a paper tiger. They can't even handle Finland. And you really see the loss of the Soviet Red Army Officer Corps that Stalin has purged because the Soviets don't look like they know what they're doing. 
their bad showing against Finland made them look weaker than they really were, and almost certainly influenced Hitler's decision to attack the Soviets only about a year later. By the time that attack comes, the European war has been transformed. In 1940, the Nazi armies overrun France in a matter of months in an unexpectedly easy campaign. The Lightning War blitzkrieg tactics destroy a French army that held the Germans off for four years in the First World War. At this point, Great Britain pretty much stands alone. They manage to defeat the Germans in an aerial campaign known as the Battle of Britain. And the Germans and Italians are fighting the British in North Africa. The British are trying to fend off German submarine warfare against their commerce shipping in the Atlantic. Hitler seems thoroughly tied down. And meanwhile, Joseph Stalin and the Soviets are complying with their part of the secret trade agreement, funneling all sorts of raw materials to keep the German army running. Little did Stalin know that these raw materials were building the German army up for an attack on him. However, this was something that Joseph Stalin should have known. The Soviet Union had perhaps the most efficient and best spy network in the world operating in the 1940s. And Joseph Stalin's spies were telling him that the Germans were coming, that Russia was on the targeting list, and that the preparations had already begun. Now, as many writers have pointed out, what's really weird about this situation is that Joseph Stalin was one of the most paranoid leaders who ever lived. He didn't trust anyone. And yet, it seems like the one person who he trusted to keep his promises was the one person that no one should ever trust to keep his promises. One of the biggest oath breakers who ever led a major country in modern times, Adolf Hitler. Stalin thought that all this information that was coming to him via his spies was disinformation that this was the work of the clever, devious British government, who were basically fighting the Nazis alone at this point, and who were desperate for any help they could get, Stalin thought that all this was part of a British plot to bring the Soviet Union into the war against the Germans. He didn't buy any of it. Now, not only were the Germans planning to attack the Soviet Union, Hitler was planning to treat the Soviet war in a way that was unlike, well, Perhaps any country had treated a war in Europe since medieval times. He was planning a war of annihilation against the Soviets. Now, you remember, Hitler had said in Mein Kampf that the Bolsheviks were the natural enemies of the Nazis. He actually said that the conflict that they were about to embark on, Nazi Germany against Bolshevik Russia, was an ideological war that had been in the makings ever since the French Revolution. A day of reckoning that would finally solve the contradictions of the French Revolution. He was planning a war of ideas, a conflict in worldviews. And he was telling his generals and his commanders that this could not be a war like the kind of war they fought in the West against France and the Netherlands and Belgium and Norway. Those conflicts were so relatively peaceful. That's not a good way to describe it because if you were fighting for the French against the Nazis, you wouldn't have thought it was peaceful. But the Germans had a saying about that war. They called it maneuvers with live ammunition. They lost about 50,000 men in their whole campaign against the West, which is unbelievable when you look at the losses that they took in the First World War. Perhaps they can be kind of forgiven for thinking that a war against the Soviet Union would not have been that bad. Factor into that the fact that the Soviet Union had looked terrible in their war against Finland and that the Nazi worldview believed the communists to have a very thin hold over the population anyway. And Hitler was optimistic that, as he said... Quote, we have only to kick in the door and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down. 
end quote. He remembered the First World War, and he remembered the mistaken lesson of the First World War, that if you beat the Soviets badly on the battlefield, their government would fall, just like the Tsarist government fell in the First World War. Now, when this government fell, Hitler had absolutely monstrous plans for Soviet Russia. First of all, this was not going to be a war conducted as gentlemen, as he told his generals before it started, quote, the war against Russia will be such that it cannot be conducted in a knightly fashion. This struggle is one of ideologies and racial differences and will have to be conducted with unprecedented, unmerciful and unrelenting harshness. All officers, he said, will have to rid themselves of obsolete ideologies. I know that the necessity for such means of waging war is beyond the comprehension of you generals, but I insist absolutely that my orders be executed without contradiction. The commissars of the Soviet Union are the bearers of ideologies directly opposed to National Socialism. Therefore, the commissars will be liquidated. German soldiers guilty of breaking international law will be excused. Russia has not participated in the Hague Convention and therefore has no rights under it." End quote. Hitler was saying that the Germans didn't need to behave in a humane fashion to their enemy because their enemy wasn't humane to begin with. What's more, Hitler had all sorts of rules governing who would be considered enemy combatants and who wouldn't in this war. And one of the definitions of an enemy combatant, a partisan, somebody who didn't deserve being treated as a POW, was anybody caught behind the front lines with a weapon. Here's the key, though. Hitler had outlined a strategy for this war based on giant encirclement movements. He had intended on avoiding Napoleon's mistakes. Remember, Napoleon haunted this warfare like a ghost, and everyone was reading his invasion chronicles from Russia in 1812, and the Russians back then had retreated into the vastness of their hinterland. Hitler's plan for avoiding this was giant movements that would capture whole Russian armies, encircle them, and destroy them. The problem is, is that that would trap large numbers of Russians behind enemy lines with their weapons. What Hitler's policy said was that when all these Russians were trapped in these giant encirclement movements, they could be considered partisans and liquidated. He was creating a rationale that would allow the Germans to simply execute anyone they wanted to in these encirclements. Now, as June 1941 rolls around, German preparations are becoming obvious to everyone, well, except the blinded Joseph Stalin. German reconnaissance missions from the air start happening in large numbers, hundreds of reconnaissance missions into June. The Germans explain it away. The movement of troops and armor toward the border with the Soviets is explained away as part of an operation to invade Great Britain that needs to be hidden and away from British air power. And Stalin buys all of this. He keeps the trains with the equipment for the German army rolling just to make sure that the Germans have no excuse for any sort of provocation. In late June, just before the German attack, deserters start coming over to the Russian side from the German side of the border. They tell of the assault plans and let the Soviets know that the Germans are coming and that it won't be long. Not only does Stalin not believe them, he has these people arrested and questioned, which in the Soviet Union of that era usually means involving torture. He has one of them shot as a spreader of disinformation. How's that for a thanks if you come over to warn the Soviets of an impending attack. On June 22nd, 
1941. At about 3 a.m. in the early morning hours, commando operations start taking place. German troops dressed as Red Army troops are parachuted over the border. They start cutting cables and telegraph and phone lines, capturing bridges, spreading all sorts of disinformation and sowing confusion. In one area, German soldiers approach a bridge guarded by Russian soldiers and simply signal them that they need to come over because the Germans need to talk to them. And when the Russians duly follow what the Germans say, the Germans open fire with machine guns and seize the bridge. This is a surprise attack on a massive scale. Americans understand things like the Pearl Harbor surprise attack, when the Japanese attacked with aircraft against an outpost in the middle of the Pacific, far away from the actual coastline of the United States. And this was a shocking, surprising event. But now imagine something on the scale of what the Germans were doing to the Russians. Imagine a surprise attack that stretched all the way from, well, north of the Baltic Sea, because Finland was actually an ally of Germany and was involved in this conflict, from north of the Baltic Sea all the way down to the Black Sea, past Sevastopol. That is a front as long as the coastlines, basically, of the United States. Imagine an attack, a surprise attack, landing on the U.S. West Coast that stretched all the way from San Diego north to the Canadian border. Or on the East Coast, stretching all the way from Miami, Florida to Boston. That's an immense amount of territory. To cover that territory, the Germans had more than 3 million soldiers lined up. More than 3,500 tanks. More than 2,700 aircraft. More than 700,000 horses. We have this image of the Second World War being a mechanized warfare type of era. And yet there were still lots of horses used just as in the First World War. The mechanized forces provided a, a thin veneer on top of the old-fashioned military. As several authors have pointed out, though, in a lot of ways this German army attempting to invade Soviet Russia looked a lot like Napoleon's army from 129 years before. In addition to the Germans, the German allies, places like Finland and Romania, contributed more than a half million troops. How the Russians were able to ignore 152 German divisions on their border is almost incomprehensible. Nevertheless, Hitler wanted these forces to strike Russia like a hurricane. And that's exactly how they hit. When the artillery barrage started and the aircraft started bombing Russian cities, the Russians had no idea what was even going on. In Sevastopol, people saw the bombs dropping initially thought that these were maneuvers, and when they figured out that this was live ammunition being shot from the anti-aircraft batteries toward the planes and that the bombs that were dropping were live ammunition, they turned to each other and said, okay, so we're at war. Who are we at war with? Now that is a surprise. Over in the western areas of the Soviet Union, the Russian forces were literally panicking. They were sending messages on the radio saying, we are being fired upon. What shall we do? And the messages coming back from headquarters were saying, you must be insane. And why isn't your message in code? That's how rattled everyone was. They were sending messages into the open, not using code. The Germans were hearing all this stuff. The German armies were organized in three giant groups. They were called Army Group North, Army Group Center, and Army Group South. And they each had their own objectives. Army Group North was going to sweep up to the north of Russia and capture Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. Army Group Center was the largest of all the concentrations. Its job was to move forward through Minsk, through Smolesk, and go toward Moscow, the Russian capital, 
and the, the command center of the Soviet Union. Army Group South was to swing downward into the Ukraine, now known as Ukraine, into the massive grain fields and the area where a lot of Russia's natural resources and food was concentrated. These armies had a very easy time, especially Army Group North and Army Group Center. Army Group North, some units were able to make 50 miles of penetration on the first day. That is unheard of. The Russians began, in some places, surrendering in an almost laughably easy amount. There were stories about a single German horseman capturing, you know, dozens and dozens of Russians who would just simply and passively march behind the horse as they were being led off into captivity. A witness describing the Russian captives from the first few days of the war wrote, We suddenly saw a broad, earth-brown crocodile slowly shuffling down the road towards us. From it came a subdued hum, like that from a beehive, prisoners of war, Russians, six deep. We couldn't see the end of the column. As they drew near, the terrible stench which met us made us quite sick. It was like the biting stench of the lion house and the filthy odor of the monkey house at the same time. But these were not animals, they were men. We made haste out of the way of the foul cloud which surrounded them. All the misery in the world seemed to be concentrated here." End quote. Many of the Russians who were surrendering were from areas of the Soviet Union that were not particularly happy with being part of the Soviet Union, places like Ukraine and Belarusia and uh, some of the Baltic areas. However, there were other disquieting reports of some Russian units fighting to the last man and the last bullet. Early on, you could already see women starting to play a role in combat. This was something that the Germans were unprepared for and that the Russians had no problem implementing. One of the things about the Soviet communist ideology was there was an equality aspect between men and women, and women were expected to fight as well. And early on, the Germans report seeing women in combat and reported that they were like wildcats. This was something perhaps the Germans didn't expect either. If the Russians were going to use women in combat, they just almost doubled the numbers of potential you know, soldiers that they had. When uh, the Russian general Zhukov called the head of the Soviet government, Joseph Stalin, to tell him that the attack was happening, he called him up in the early morning hours, woke him up, told him about it, and said all you could hear on the other end of the phone was his heavy breathing. Talk about being in shock. Everyone was surprised by the German attack, even though many people had predicted it. Many of the spies had reported about it. Now, not everyone was unhappy, though. Winston Churchill is said to have sent his butler over to his foreign secretary, Anthony Eden's home, and his butler delivers a cigar, a big cigar on a silver platter, with the butler telling Eden, quote, the prime minister's compliments, and the German armies have invaded Russia, end quote. For Churchill, this was great news, as Stalin had worried that it might be. That's why he believed all the disinformation. He thought the British wanted this, and whereas they may not have actually pushed for it, it was good news that they now had a huge ally in the war against Hitlerism. And what's so interesting about Churchill's response and the cigar to Anthony Eden is that of all the British leaders, Winston Churchill was probably the most stridently anti-communist of the lot. And yet Britain was looking for help wherever they could find it. And the German invasion of the Soviet Union threw an unexpected lifeline to Churchill and the British. And even though he was no fan of Stalin and no fan of the Bolsheviks, as Churchill said right after the invasion, quote, if Hitler invaded hell, 
I would make at least a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. End quote. That sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? There are people, though, you know, Harry Truman, the guy who uh, succeeded Franklin Delano Roosevelt as U.S. president, was quoted as saying that we ought not to want one side to be victorious too quickly. He said, if you find that the Germans are doing better, you ought to help the Russians for a while. If you find the Russians are doing better, you ought to help the Germans for a while and thereby kill, you know, more guys off. The predictions of how long the Soviets would last were, in hindsight, insane. American military advisors predicted a complete German victory within three months. Some British predicted six weeks. The British intelligence service thought that the Russians would be done for within 10 days. Now, I know that sounds crazy, looking back on how long the whole thing lasted and how strong the Soviet Union turned out to be, but look at how quickly the Germans had conquered the other areas that they had managed to hold. The Wehrmacht had conquered Poland in 27 days. Denmark in 24 hours, Norway in 23 days, Holland in five days, Belgium in 18 days, and the great military power thought to be the strongest in Europe, France, in 39 days. Yugoslavia fell in 12 days, Greece in 21 days, Crete in 11 days. Starts to look like that a prediction for the Soviets to last as long as three months, which the United States general staff had made, might have been giving them too much credit. And when you looked at how quickly the German armies were advancing, it looked like Russia might not last a month. In the first two days of the war, the Germans destroyed more than 2,000 Soviet aircraft, most of them on the ground, most of them lined up wingtip to wingtip, totally unprepared for warfare. In 48 hours, the Germans had turned the largest air force in the world into a shadow of its former self. Now, I should point out here the size of the Soviet armed forces. In addition to a large number of people in the army, the Soviets had, for example, more tanks than any other nation in the world, maybe as many as 24,000. But most of these tanks were old, obsolete models, and the Germans ended up having no trouble with them. As we already mentioned, the Soviets had one of the largest air forces, if not the largest air force in the world. Same problem, though, a lot of obsolete models with pilots who maybe weren't the best in the world. The Soviets had lots of artillery, but they weren't very modern in their doctrines on how they used them. Some have estimated that Soviet artillery in the Second World War was about as effective as British, French, or American artillery was in the First World War. So while the Soviets had a lot of equipment, they didn't necessarily have modern stuff, and they didn't necessarily use it in the most modern way. They learned quickly, though. The first of the great encirclements, which was part of the German plan to keep the Russians from retreating back into their vast country, occurs only eight days after the fighting starts. German armored formations close around a bunch of Soviet armies in the area of Minsk, trapped as many as 400,000 Russians in an iron vice. 400,000 Soviet soldiers trapped after eight days of war. That's an amazing number, and it was just the beginning. Stalin shoots the general responsible for the debacle, but the Germans start finding out some disquieting things fighting the Soviets. The first thing is, is that they're sometimes fighting with ferocity that the Germans had not encountered in their Western European conquests. 
The chief of staff of the German army, General Franz Halder, writes in his diary, quote, reports from all fronts confirm previous indications that the Soviets are fighting to the last man. One German general, von Kleist, says that, quote, the Russians are so primitive that they won't give up even when they're surrounded by a dozen machine guns. I would say, he says, that the difference between German bravery and Russian bravery is the sense that the former is logical and the latter brutal, end quote. In other words, the Russians don't know when they're beaten. When the Germans would surround, say, French troops or Dutch troops or Belgian troops, those troops might try a half-hearted breakout, but then they would surrender as any normal group of people would, realizing that they're beaten. The Russians weren't doing that. This was starting to result in casualties. Even though the Germans were sweeping past the Russians, they were taking more losses than they were used to, and they were fighting an enemy that seemed to be fanatical. Sometimes they were taking tons and tons of prisoners. Other times, they were shocked by the amount of resistance they were getting from people who were doomed. And the Soviet army was not in good shape. They weren't ready for this war. They were caught in transition. Their deployment was terrible, the idea that they were strung out over this entire front. They simply were not ready for this blitzkrieg. And yet, the Soviet system was such that the soldiers were willing to sacrifice themselves in order to slow the Germans down. And this unnerved the Germans. A German machine gunner had written what it was like during this first group of battles to fight the Russian colossus and how they conducted themselves. Listen to this. Quote, A German soldier who was sent to the Eastern Front in August 1941 described his shock in discovering that the Red Army was employing the same kind of human wave tactics that were used in the First World War. He said, The Soviet assaults were carried out by masses of men who made no real attempt at concealment, but trusted in sheer weight of numbers to overwhelm us. In one such attack, he said, the lines of men stretched to the right and the left of our regimental front, overlapping it completely, and the whole mass of Russian troops came tramping solidly and relentlessly forward. He described the site as an unbelievable sight, a machine gunner's dream target. He added, it was rumored that the commissars had worked out the number of machine guns which we had, multiplied that number by the number of rounds per minute that we could fire, calculated how many minutes it would take for a body of soldiers to cross the area, and added to the final total a couple of thousand men. Thus, some men would get through to our line. He writes, At 600 meters we opened fire, and whole sections of the first wave just vanished, leaving here and there an odd survivor still walking stolidly forward. He says it was uncanny, unbelievable, inhuman. No soldier of ours would have continued to advance alone. He said that the machine guns got so hot that you couldn't touch them. He says he never saw a stretcher bearer during the entire time, and the Ivans, as he called them, often sat outside there wounded for more than three days. He says, quote, the number, duration, and fury of those attacks had exhausted and numbed us completely. He said not to hide the truth, they frightened us. He said that we would win, we had no doubt. But what we were now engaged in would be a long, bitter, and hard-fought war. A long, bitter, and hard-fought war is exactly what the Germans had not experienced in land warfare on the continent up to that point. On the 3rd of July, only 11 days after the assault on the Soviet Union started, General Halder, the German chief of staff, wrote in his diary, quote, it is probably not an exaggeration when I contend that the campaign in Russia has been won in 14 days. End quote. 
And Fritz Halder can probably be forgiven for seeming to be a little premature in his writing off the Soviet Union. After all, pretty much all the military leaders that were asked thought just as he did the world over, even some in the Soviet Union. The inadvertent monument to man's inhumanity to man, those bone fields that author Donovan Webster wrote about that would be created in the Soviet victories of 1942-1943, the 300,000 or so dead Germans on the southern steppes of Russia seemed a heck of a long way off in 1941. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks for download to your computer, your iPod, and your MP3 player. Listen wherever and whenever you like, just like you're listening to this podcast right now. And Audible has more than 40,000 titles to choose from. Every genre, Audible has it covered. Get a free audiobook download when you sign up today. If you're not sure what to check out, why don't you try a book I used for this podcast today? The Greatest Battle, Stalin. Hitler, and the Desperate Struggle for Moscow that Changed the Course of World War II by Andrew Nagorsky. It's chock full of new information from the fall of the Soviet Union and a new and sort of a different look at the war on the Eastern Front. Go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash hardcore history for your free audiobook download. Coming up in part two of this episode, the Germans continue their lightning drive on the Soviet capital, and it won't be long before their advanced forces can see the spires of the city in their binoculars. Also, they cut off the city of Leningrad in the north and put the large, industrial, highly populated city under a blockade. They shell it, they starve it, and the people in Leningrad have to put up with things that, well, virtually no one else in such a large, modern city have had to put up with in the 20th century. The German armies also move into Ukraine and Belarusia, and the people there get to find out the true meaning of the phrase, out of the frying pan, into the fire trading the evil communist ideology they so hated for the evil Nazi ideology they will come to hate. Also, partisan forces spring up and create a third force that people can get in trouble with that is at once both heroic and at times just as horrific as the people they're fighting. Also, the mechanisms of the Holocaust will follow the German victories into the East, and the Jews in those areas will get a taste and then much more than a taste of what their brethren in the West and in Germany have had to experience up until this point. And it's eventually going to be worse than anything that the people in the West experience. And finally, the horrific Battle of Stalingrad, a turning point in the war, one of the worst battles of all time, and the creator of those very bone fields that Donovan Webster talks about. All this and more in part two of Ghosts of the Ostfront. Are you, uh, feeling guilty yet? A buck a show. It's all we ask. <laughs>